Well, good morning, brethren. I feel like we got to hit the ground running because I've got a lot to say and try as I may, I can't seem to get it within the time frame. And uh, so it may end abruptly and I apologize for that. But the good news is that I'm going to leave you in suspense and it's a good suspense for what's going to come. Uh, so, <clears throat> and it's, it's providential what Pastor was saying because that's one of the conflicts that I'm going to have to deal with and I've been praying earnestly about is how saints can resolve in their mind uh, this ability to see God as love uh, when they're in the midst of trial. It, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's been an age-old kind of enigma or dilemma. So we hope to address that. But for today, please open your Bibles to Ephesians, once again, chapter 3, uh, and verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And there we read, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So let us once again pray. Our Father, we are again uh, cast upon Thee. And <clears throat> uh, I pray that You'd even give me the ability and give me the words to pray to You with this uh, difficulty. A difficulty that only can be overcome by the Holy Spirit being amongst us. I need Thee, Holy Spirit, to set forth the beauty of God and the people need You to hear it, to understand it, and to be edified by it. So without a lot of elaboration, it's just very simple. Be with us. Holy Spirit, hover amongst us. Overshadow us. Baptize us in this hour. In Jesus' name, Amen. Of these verses before us, as he was about to enter into this passage of Scripture, the great scholar and great theologian, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, had this to say, quote, You will never hear anything greater than this. However long you may live in this world, whatever orator may arise, you will never hear anything equal to this in eloquence and elevation of thought, in profundity of language and of conception. It is undoubtedly one of these great mountain peaks in the Scripture. There are many who would say, and I have no doubt that they are right, that this is the highest peak of all in the whole glorious range of Scripture truth of divine revelation. End quote. And God called Moses, as you may recall, out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. So let us tread this holy ground with the same kind of reverence and godly fear, but albeit with boldness and joyful anticipation. I can remember old Pastor Johnson, he'd come to the pulpit and he'd have his quaint terms. He'd say, John, I got some good stuff for you today. Got some good stuff. And there's some good stuff here. Now, <clears throat> In the last consideration of this passage, uh, or what I called an introduction to perhaps what may become a series of messages under the heading, God is Love, I felt I needed to lay some very important groundwork. 
I felt there were things to establish firmly in our minds and hearts before we delved into the actual exposition of the passage. Now, God is love. Uh, that was not recorded uh, properly in the bulletin. The bulletin says love of God. Uh, we're not just talking the main thrust. What, what, what's the undergirding point we're making is not what the love looks like, but the fact that that is who God is. God is love. That That is what uh, uh, should have been recorded. But that's okay. Now, <clears throat> additionally, there has arisen uh, a kind of a, a newfounded sensitivity I am feeling for those who are hurting presently <clears throat> in the body. And it's due to this present distress, if I was going to use uh, the Apostle Paul's words. In short, like I was saying, it is this age-old quandary of how we can reconcile the reality that God is love with the extreme pain, grief, and sorrow we are presently under. So we're kind of straining, as it were, to see it. Straining to see the love of God because our vision is blurred because our eyes are full of tears. So I've, I've felt this uh, attention and predicament in myself and have expressed the same to God, which I'll try to explain. Notwithstanding our outward circumstances, God and who he is remains the same. I am the Lord, I change not. He changes not, and because He is love, that doesn't change either. This is another glorious way of God's love, one of the many ways that we spoke of counting. Let me count the ways. His love is a many-splendored thing, and I speak now of its immutability like himself. The Psalms speak of it as everlasting and steadfast love. And it is from everlasting to everlasting. But the dilemma and the impasse that we run up against is how can we hear it when sorrow has overtaken us? And for my part, in seeking to richly edify you with or by this marvelous loving kindness of God, I think and I ask myself, are, are they even able to hear a single word I am saying about it? And can I see or hear it when I'm in a strange land? You remember Psalm 137. How shall we sing the Lord's song when we are in the captivity of trial, sorrow, Grief and pain. In the midst of trial, beloved David, the man after God's own heart, couldn't hear it. And so he exclaims, cause me to hear thy loving kindness. I'm kind of deafened by the affliction that I'm under. Cause me to hear it, Lord. I can't hear it. I can't see it. I know it is true. In my mind. So, men have, through the ages, and I have, racked my brains over this roadblock. There are plenty of elaborate answers from the theologians and pastors and preachers. <clears throat> but for right now, because this is not the subject of our message this morning, I'll give you the short answer. It is a one-word answer. Wait. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And I think really this is the reason for Paul's emphasis and to know the love that that is an, that is an action that is a, that is a perpetual action for the rest of your lives. And so. Uh, if you're not feeling it, or if you can't see it, or if you can't hear it, then the answer is 
Wait. Wait upon the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. We're going to deal in a few seconds about that word strengthen and how God strengthens. And He shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I will wait, says David. He will return and will not tarry. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. And help will come. And God in love will make sense of all this. But know this. In our waiting, God is working. Brother sent that to me, Brother Jeremy, as kind of a wall plaque. In our waiting, God is working. It was tremendously helpful. So based on this factor, this kind of dilemma, and some feedback and response I have received, I feel there is still <clears throat> some further need to set the stage or the platform from which we can kind of launch into this essential proclamation of what and who God is. God is love. He says this of himself. But it's not the idea of like perhaps a jeweler uh, holding forth a diamond and the light shining on it and he's turning it and all the facets are sparkling. You know, it's not like just getting you know, to know that who God is and that he's love. And, and he's, it's the idea that that needs to come into here. What he is is what needs to be in me. I need to know and experience in my heart. I need to be rooted and grounded in this love. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so God is love. He says this of Himself. And there would be absolutely no difference between John saying, God is love, and God Himself saying, I am love. So I feel the need to lay further groundwork because of the relationship of what John is saying in that in 1 John 4 and what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3. Let me put it this way to clarify. We need to appreciate what John is saying if we're going to appreciate what Paul is saying. John is pressing and emphasizing who God is essentially and how essential and imperative it is that we know that God is love. That's John. He wants us to make sure that we get it. And so he emphasizes it like five or six different ways in chapter 4. Paul, on the other hand, is saying, go for it. With all your strength and for all your Christian life until you eternally bask in it in glory, wherein his glory is enjoyed forever. So John is saying, love is who God is. Paul is saying, diligently pursue him who is love. Pursuing his great and eternal love is pursuing him. So venture in to the great expanse of his love. Go ahead, pull out your tape measure and your telescope, and be overwhelmed at how immeasurable is God and Christ's great love for us. There is a wideness to this, said Frederick Faber. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. For the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. So Paul is saying, let nothing move you. Lean into it. Press into it. And now we hear this, burrow into it. And make no apology for doing so. Therein you will find life. Therein you will find and discover joy unspeakable. So I trust you see the difference. John and Paul are working in a concert. God is love. John, Paul, indulge in it. Edify yourself by it. And that is what we all as a church body uh, are to do, according to Paul's other words in Ephesians 4.16, where he speaks of the whole body fitly joined together 
making increase or improvement of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The apostle is saying there's nothing wrong and everything right with edifying yourself either individually or as a church body in love, in God's love. In the, in the love of God, go after it. And then, just the power of those words alone, God is love. You have to understand that this, this is uh, the engine. This is the boiler room. This is at the heart of your, of your service and of everything you do. The, motiv- the motivation. But just the power of those words alone, God is love, should send us backward and fall to the ground as when in John 18.6, Jesus said, I am He. Now that He is in italics there. Two words. I am. That's all He said. And He cast these soldiers backward and onto the ground. Can you picture that awesome moment? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am. God is. I am. God is love. And so powerful a self-proclamation is this, that we should be melted under the most beautiful definition, I am love. Or God is love. It's the same thing. It is the same thing. Now we saw from the other night that God's glory is the brightness of His love shining out from Him. And the highest and most stark love beam is personified and seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are clear. We behold the glory of God, the Father, In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we see it. That's where we behold it most vividly. Christ is the most brilliant and radiant expression of God's love. God the Father's love reaches its zenith in Christ. The Father directs our gaze upon the expressed image and illustration of the love that resides in his own heart and being and character. Then points to the son whom he has always loved and cherished and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Whom he has always loved and cherished. Behold, my love personified in him and illustrative in him. Now you're familiar with Romans 5 8. It talks about God commending or commendeth his love. 5 8 says God's love is commended in Christ. Another version says God shows instead of commended, shows his love. He puts it on display. And your New King James Version says it best God demonstrates his own love. That is, he manifests it which is before perhaps hidden. You know, he reveals it, removes the veil, but now gives clear evidence of it, a full proof and demonstration of it. One man wrote, he has so confirmed it by this instance that there is no room nor reason to doubt of it. He has illustrated and set it off with the greatest luster by this circumstance of it. So it is if God is saying, dearly beloved, you have some doubt or suspicion about me being love and of love. My beloved son is the most demonstrative of who I am. With what the father is like, what the father is like could not be declared louder or the Father's person be displayed clearer 
than in Christ Jesus, for he is that expressed image, that exact image, duplicating the person of his father who is love. And everything which is born out of the the offspring of his love, goodness, mercy, truth, marvelous loving kindness, David calls it. Forgiveness, we just sang about it. Patience and gentleness, which David said made him great and most ravished his heart. He's like, thy thy gentle way with me, thy gentle treatment of me. You just feel the love. Gentleness have made me great, has stood me on my feet, has put strength within me. So this is how Christ declares the Father and His glory. Then we have Moses asking to be shown what God's glory is. Exodus 33 and 34. I beseech thee, I, I, I beg of thee, Lord, show me thy glory. And God tells him, in essence, I will grant that request, but I will show you a portion of it, as no man can see my face and live. You will stand upon a rock and I will pass by. All my goodness will pass by. So right there he's beginning to say what his glory consists of. As I pass by, my goodness will pass by and I will proclaim who I am. Now he begins to clarify. It shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, which would otherwise overwhelm you. I will put you in the cliff of the rock and cover you with my hand while I and my glory passes by and you will see a portion of me, just the back parts of my glory. And then it happens. The Lord passed by him with this proclamation of who he is, his glory, as Moses requested to see, and his weight, his weight. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, qualifying who, who he is and what he is, describing himself, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving. You want to see my glory, Moses? You want to know who I am? Do you want to know what I am about? I have shown you my glory. Now, I may have uh, been kind of slow in making this connection, but God's desire for us is to be like himself. We, we talked about this a little bit in the men's prayer time yesterday. He wants us to look and, and be like himself and act like himself, which is love and loving. And so... He would not have kind of nudged the the Apostle Paul and inspired him to write about perfect love and how it behaves, Corinthians 13, if this was not an exact reflection of who he is. Corinthians 13 is the exact glory which the Lord showed Moses. Let me read it again. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving. And then we got Corinthians. We have Corinthians 13. Love, like God, is extremely patient. For that is what long-suffering means there. He, he suffers or, or tolerates uh, for a long time wrongdoing and personal offenses. Love, like God, is kind is humble, as that is what is meant by a collection of those phrases, no jealousy, you know, wanting what others have, no self-aggrandizement or self-centeredness and boastfulness. It says, envieth not, vaunteth not itself, which means to boast. That's not what love is like, and that's not what God is like. Is not puffed up. Now, this is interesting. God is not proud. And I don't know what goes through your mind right there. His humility, his humbleness was expressly imaged and in and through Christ. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself. 
to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Most vivid display of the humbleness or humility of even God, Jehovah. And on and on the equation could go what God is, what it got, what God is, is what love is. Is not rude or behave unseemly, not self-seeking, not easily provoked, beareth, believeth, hopeth, endureth all things, etc. Here is God's own self-disclosure. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. This is eternal life that we know him. And he's saying, this is, this is, this is what I'm about. Understandeth and knoweth me. And who are you, Lord? I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. You delight to exercise loving kindness in the earth? That's who you really are? What a bad picture I've had of you. What a war picture I've had. What, a, what, a, what an oppressive picture I've had. Thank you for telling us who you truly are. So I think all those, all those uh, passages, uh, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, John in Revelation 1, Daniel in chapters 9 and 10, and, and Moses here in this verse, experience more than just being afraid of the of the glory of the Lord uh, shown as his revelation to them of himself. He did not just show them raw power and intimidate them because of his size. That is not what he was doing. They collapsed. Their knees did give way. They fell at his feet as dead, John says. Because they also saw this ravishing and majestic beauty in God. Now, I try to think of an illustration. I remember when I was in the Army and I was serving as a medic. And I was at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And there's a sense in which God could have said to these men, you know, I apologize that the brightness of my glory is somewhat melting you. I mean, you know, it's almost like I can't help it. That's just who I am. I'm not trying to. So I went and one of my patients was, uh, he might have been a four-star general, but I think at least a brigadier general. He was a general and I was assigned to take care of him. He was in one of the hospital rooms. So there was a little fear and trembling in, in going and taking care of this guy uh, because of who he was and his uh, status and stature. So uh, I think you know, I kind of went in a little nervous, you know, and provided him his AM care and took care, took care of him. And uh, he saw I was a little shaky, right? So he said, son, I want you to know that I put my pants on the same way you do. And it was just like it just, just took away this pressure. But the point was, because of who God is, he's not wanting to be intimidating, but it's such an overwhelming that, you know, you, you, you're just not comfortable and you have the sense of what these guys had. His brightness, yes, his brightness exposed their darkness reflected in Isaiah's expression, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me! But that in no way diminished this glorious beauty in God's person. They could see that as well. For immediately, if you read those passages, they experience his amazing love and forgiveness. John says, he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not. I'm not about scaring you or convicting you. Isaiah's unclean lips were touched with a coal from off the altar. The seraphim assuring him, lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. Daniel says, touched me. I want to elaborate a little bit on this. Laid his hand upon me. And three times, three times he tells Daniel, Oh, Daniel, 
Thou art a man greatly beloved. God is love. And His love and favor shown upon us is the most enabling, ennobling, and empowering thing this side of glory. Now, empowering. We want to talk about this strength of love. It sets us on our feet and makes us strong in the Lord, as His love is the power of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. His love is the power of His might that does make us strong. This is exactly what was the experience of John and Daniel and these others. Two things. First, there was the touch of love. This idea of the incredible comfort that came to these men when God placed His strong hand of comfort upon them. John says it very clearly. He laid His right hand upon me. This was no mental exercise. This was nothing imaginary to John. It was very real and very affecting and very moving. There is significance in that it was not just his hand, but his right hand. The scriptures have a lot to say with the right hand of God. Daniel chapter 10, 10 and 18. And behold, the hand touched me. And verse 18, then there came again and touched me. Now observe. What was the result of this loving touch from the very hand of God? It was a touch of love as, as it is expressed in his words to him. O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. The very clear result of this communication, we'll call it, of God's love and favor produced a strengthening. This is a very, very important uh, principle here. Listen, God wants his children strong and confident in him, rejoicing in his love for them, not cowering before him, suspicious of him and his thoughts and motives uh, toward us. I think God, seeing our thoughts of suspicion and doubting of what he is up to with us, settles the score. It is this that he is saying to us, you think you know what I am thinking? You think you know what I'm about and what my plans are? Your discernment of my thoughts is skewed and kind of unfair. Dearly beloved children, what you are thinking is not what I am thinking. Your thoughts are not the same as mine. But though you are suspicious of my thoughts and plans and do not know my thoughts, I know them. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. So that's what God thinks. But returning to this principle and aspect just here of God's love strengthening a man, the strength and almighty power of God's love, and oh how it strengthens, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, just as a foretaste to uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul shows the absolute necessity of this strengthening and that it is exclusively wrought by the Holy Spirit, a divine enablement. This is the first thing on his prayer list. The first cause for which he bows his knees. He saw this strengthening as requisite and prerequisite in order to bear up under the weight of the mighty glory, the riches of his glory that they would receive. I'm holding off trying to restrain myself from from opening up this incredible concept that Paul sets forth at this time. But he is saying unto these Ephesian believers, you need to be prepared for this. You need to be made ready and strengthened. And I'm not talking about some cursory or superficial strengthening. I'm talking about being fortified from the inside out. 
I'm talking about in praying that God Almighty would grant you to be strengthened in the very core of your being, which he aptly describes as the inner man. That God would strengthen you in the inner man. You see, dearly beloved, there is power in the love. Yes, there is power in the blood, but love was behind the blood. Love sent my Savior to die in my stead. God's love is incredibly strengthening. His mighty love shed abroad in our hearts is what delivers us from our weakness and makes us strong. The implications of just this one self-definition or self-disclosure are many. This is not a singular or isolated uh, theological fact, and nor am I... <clears throat> Nor am I fixated on just this one aspect of God's glory, God is love. The most profound concept that I desire for all of us to see is just the opposite. Experiencing and your affections being powerfully moved by God is love affects everything. There is nothing singular or isolated about it. It will permeate every single aspect of your Christian lives and service. It will be the wind in your sail, the joy in your heart to love God back and to love and help others. I'm so full of love, I have no problem. Your commandments commandments are not grievous. Why? Because you've shown love to me. And I, I just exude love to others because... We, I, and I love you because you first loved me. And we talked about this very concept yesterday at morning at the men's uh, prayer time. Even your evangelism, your, your evangelism, for example, will not be beautiful evangelism unless it is perfumed. And you, my brethren, perfumed with God is love. How could you have compassion and affection for the lost? However defiled they are. Your effectiveness and success, that which makes you labor, your labor in the Lord not in vain, hinges upon knowing and keeping yourselves in the love of God, his love for you. Now, a while back, we entertained this, um, this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself each morning or, or, or each day. As you arise and uh, Pam and I have ordered and have uh, a little tin sign in our devotional setting drawn from that tune in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, you know, the start of the day. George Mueller, a 19th century evangelist, truly epitomized this idea. He took in through the decades of the 19th century, literally tens of thousands of orphans in Bristol. He gave them all Bibles. He sheltered them. He educated them. Made sure uh, they all knew Christ. Tens of thousands. He makes a very interesting point in his autobiography where he explains where he tried for years to pray each morning, but he found his mind wandering and it was becoming kind of an odd, cold exercise for him. Can you identify well, then, he made this discovery. Quote, The point is this, he said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state. That's the first thing. That is preaching the gospel to ourselves each new day, whether you interpret the gospel as good news uh, or the gospel as a person. The good news is that out of infinite love in himself and for you, Jesus died. He so loved and God uh, for God is love. The good news is Jesus. It is a person, as Paul clearly says, who loved me and gave himself for me. God is love. Now, before you shut me down, 
with kind of the broken record label, let me show you a progression that takes place when our mind and affections are not occupied with the love of God. When we are not kept in it, Jude 21. We will tend in a very subtle way to migrate back into self-righteousness and legalism when we are not seeing God as love. We begin to shift our focus on, on performance. We shift our focus on our doing. And ever so slowly, we begin to pat ourselves on the back and think, what a good boy am I? And if God does not step in and correct us, we become egotistical, self-righteous narcissists. We tout our accomplishments, desiring the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And this is just one implication of not seeing God as love and keeping ourselves in his love, his infinite love for us. So this is the second preliminary I would like to expand upon. But I trust that you see by now that the main thrust of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 19 is for us to know that God is love. We are to be rooted and grounded in this knowledge and this love. And we are, we are to, to pursue it to its furthest extremes. To possess this knowledge which passeth knowledge. That's what he says in verse 19. We are to know the unknowable. To get knowledge of this love of Christ for us which passeth or surpasses knowledge. You say, wait a minute, Paul. You're, you're, you're contradicting yourself. What do you mean? How could we, how could you exhort us to know the unknowable? How are we to possess a knowledge that passeth knowledge? But I believe he puts it exactly that this way because he is emphasizing and stressing the importance of the ongoing nature of this thing. Because knowing the love of Christ passeth our knowledge, is not a reason to stop furthering this knowledge and give up. But just the opposite. Because the unsearchable riches are called unsearchable is not a reason to stop searching them and say, forget it. Picture a miner on the side of a mountain filled with gold. There he is with his little pickaxe, chipping into the side of that mountain, and suddenly... He sees a yellow glitter, a golden sparkle. His heart starts beating faster. Feels like it's going to beat right out of his chest. So he picks it up and he puts it in his gold bag. He begins to dig more aggressively. And he discovers that first nugget was just the tip of the iceberg. The further he mines, the more he discovers. More and more and more. And so is the increase of his joy and his glory. Paul is saying, I'm not trying to scare you off by these measurements of height and length and depth and width of of the love of God. I am rather enticing you to a gourmet meal. I am seeking to tantalize you to search as for hid treasure. But, It is a treasure that the deeper and deeper you go, the more beautiful it becomes. And the more your heart is ravished and taken up with it. So knowing God as love and seeing God as love is fundamentally important. But herein lies the problem. Our natural propensity, as we said a few minutes ago, is not to see God as he truly is. So by the use of some illustrations that have helped me and theologians that I have read after, I would like to try to explain why this is so and what a proper view does look like. So how are we going to do this? Recall that David saw this beauty, this perfection in God. And would spend all his days beholding in the courts of God this beauty. This glorious divine virtue in God. And could say, a day, simply a day in thy courts is better than a thousand spent elsewhere. Was David lying 
To say that David was making this stuff up would be to question the veracity and inspiration of God's word. Did David have a special entitlement? Was he entitled to something that we are not? Was he a real man, a man of like passions, flesh and blood, real like us? Yes, he was. And no, he was not lying. He was real and what he beheld was real. So we are just going to think, what kind of God is he? What is our God most essentially, fundamentally, and foundationally like? And there are two ways we could go. And this was very helpful to me. Makes sense to me. The first way is starting with God as the creator. So your reason, God is the one who created all things, so he's the one in charge, right? He made everything, so he gets to say how things are going to be, how things are going to go in his creation. So if you go that path, God is essentially a lawgiver. Who is he in essence? I am the law. Now, either agree or disagree, consciously or subconsciously, we think of God in this way a lot. We go for this option a lot. And just as an aside, this this view really shapes how you speak of the gospel. And what the gospel and what the shape of your gospel uh, is. So we say God is in charge. So he's laid down the rules and he has a perfect moral standard. But there, there, there is a problem. You don't match up to that perfect moral standard. But that's what he's really interested in. He is the law. But the good news is that God forgives you when you repent and trust him. And he deals with that failure so that you are judged as if you have come up to that moral standard. So it's a gospel wherein God is essentially a lawgiver. He relates to people on the basis of their obedience to, to his moral code. But no one has actually ever been obedient. So it's a question of whether through forgiveness you are viewed as if you have kept that moral law. But that's it. So that's it. If God is essentially a lawgiver, if that's the most basic thing to say about him, you will always relate to him as a, as a lawgiver because that's who he is. But here's the thing. You will never love the lawgiver. You may feel grateful and have gratitude for him letting you off for your failures, failures and even counting you as a law-abiding citizen, but that's it. And gratitude is not the same thing as love. Is it? Many view God as quite impersonal. Quite frankly, there's nothing attractive or compelling in just the word God, generally speaking. So when we speak of God in this kind of love language, we are met with resistance from some. They think it's just so much syrupy language that would lead down to the road to relativism. And mushy sentimentalism, especially those who take the Bible serious. And even in the most orthodox uh, circles, we have become so wary of this love language, we find ourselves seeking to re-explain it. And yes, this contention has occurred between Calvinists and Arminians. My God is sovereign, says the Calvinist, holy and all-powerful. His ways are far above our ways, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto. That means I'm really sound. Don't trivialize him with mushy love statements like smile, God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Really? Is that where our orthodoxy has led us? So-called stalwarts of the faith, we have just presented a very impersonal and lopsided God. A God of power, but who it seems has really nothing to do with love. And dare we think it, a God that we really don't want to spend much time with. And if we are not keeping ourselves in the love of God and in in the God who is love, it is so easy to distort and darken the very being of God. But remember Psalm 27. The one thing that David wanted to behold was the beauty of the Lord. You see, David doesn't suspect that there's some darkness 
hiding in this God, but rather he sees that through and through this God possesses a beauty worth beholding and probing ever deeper into. But that's where you go if you start your description of God by thinking of him simply as one in charge or governor of the universe. Governor, government. Now, our government provides us with a lot of things with its several welfare-type programs when perhaps we get in a bind. But we don't love the government. That's a different thing. I hope you see the difference. Because if God is just a cosmic government, and if salvation is simply God choosing to count me as a law-abiding citizen, then what's left? What remains is gratitude for my lawgiver for giving my for forgiving my failures, but that's it. That's the extent of the relationship. You will always relate to God in the way that you see God. But if you either consciously or subconsciously see him as a lawgiver, you will relate to him in that manner. And not surprisingly, your relationship with him will never be particularly warm. And it's no wonder that other things seem more attractive to me. So know him truly, and we're about finished. And I, I, well, let me, let me rush. <clears throat> so know him truly is the point. And know him to be not simply one to whom we owe obedience, uh, to whom we owe duties. So now, with that, with the time that remains, which isn't much, I just want to introduce you, and that's all I'm going to do, to the Christian way, the Christian way of seeing God for who he is essentially. The Christian way to go is to push back much, much further. This is because there is something way more profound to be said about God than simply the fact that he is in charge. Way more profound because there was a time before creation, when he was not a lawgiver, there was no one to give laws to. So if you have a God who has an existence before he ever is in charge of anything, what sort of God is that? This, this is right here and just now a high point of suspense. And I truly regret that I'm going to have to leave you in suspense. But our time is gone, and I truly want to do this next section, the justice it deserves, which I can't in a few short minutes. But John 17:24 is where we're going next. For it is there Jesus tells us. He says to his Father exactly what God was like before creation. And, and what this opened to me literally took my breath away. But we will have to leave it there for now and... I apologize for this abrupt ending. Let's pray.